Welcome to the Underground Comedy Podcast with Sean Joyce. For more information about our live shows, check out undergroundcomedydc.com. Hey, what's up? Thanks for checking out our first episode. Each week, I'll be sitting down with comics from around the country and talking mainly about comedy, but we'll also be getting into other topics as the conversations unfold. Our guest today is Jared Logan. Jared has appeared on Comedy Central, VH1, and CBS. He's written for the Grammys the past two years, and he just wrapped up several years as the writer for The Late Late Show with James Corden. In addition to all that, Jared is one of the first comics to headline an underground comedy show, and he's one of my favorite comics to watch perform, especially at The Big Hunt, because he's got such a big presence on stage, and he's so good at interacting with the crowd. If you ever have a chance to see Jared live, I strongly recommend it. Here's our talk. Everybody in the audience was like, Median age fifty eight. Exactly. Yeah, of course. And uh, Paul Simon was great, but Kara's acting like she's at Lollapalooza and she just spilled her wine on these people in front of us. <laughs> That's what happens when you get old. And they were so mad because they were kind of like, "We don't. We didn't come here for a concert." Yeah. And that was kind of Kara was just like, "Whatever. You're at a concert." Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's when you're in. Get the- over it. That's. I think it's a tough time to beat when you're. Once you go past 35 uh-huh. and then you get into that middle ground of young, old, you end up at a Paul Simon concert, but you, you still remember when you went to regular concerts. Right. And then you end up spilling wine on people and they, <laughs> it's completely inappropriate. Oh, you're in, I thought it was appropriate. They should get into it. Come on. Just because it's Paul Simon doesn't mean we can't fucking rock. How old's Paul Simon? He's in his 70s for yeah, sure, right? So, I, I mean, based he, off of that. Yeah, seems like. Yeah, we're very, we're we're VH1 heads, but I always have been. Even when I was twenty six, I want to see. I want to see like a Paul Simon. You're an old soul, or a very white soul. A white soul. Yeah, okay. maybe. I'm like a white boy. You had a lot of VH1 experience. Oh yeah, I was on uh, the best week ever when they did that for about two years. They were you that was was that one of your first big things that you did? Yeah, I th- I'd say so. You know, in New York for a little while, I had it pretty good because I, d- I was doing a couple Talking Heads things, right? And those things were so easy to do. You're a good Talking Head. Yeah, and I liked to do it too. So yeah. they would give you a news story, and then you I just write a bunch of jokes on it. And then you go in and you perform to a camera. I would try to get the camera guys to laugh. Right. And um, and so that was the perfect, like, those jobs were perfect for somebody who wanted to run around the city, kind of doing sets at night. Yeah. Who had to be out on the weekend, right, to, like, maybe do a club somewhere. Right. So, um, and it was good money. It was good money. You go in a couple times a week. and Did it help you start to get a following? I don't think it really – I don't know. I don't think – I don't think so. I don't think people watched that VH1 Best Week Ever. I feel like people used to watch it. I didn't really watch it, but I I remember people talking about it a lot. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think people... I think if we're dealing with this thing with cable and network TV where people don't know what the audience is for anything. So yeah. VH1 is like... Uh, I think it was like women who were a little a bit older than me at the time. Okay. And like, they're like... Okay, th- cool, but why am I watching this guy? Or what? I have no idea, honestly. Yeah. I don't know who watches it, but I know I didn't have like a ton of. I, I would have more response on like Twitter from I would do things for VH1 called "I Love the 2000s." Yeah, people watch those religiously. 
and okay. love those. Those like kind of nostalgia shows. Yeah, yeah. And then I also did this is funny. So I did this show on True TV called World's Dumbest. Yeah. Which was similar, but you will look at a crazy video mm-hmm. and then you do jokes about that and staring at the camera doing jokes about that and that people have seen me on that a lot because that would play endlessly yeah they yeah, and they i probably did a hundred episodes of that that's cool um and i think they might even still rerun it at night so people saw me on that a lot yeah i think you're real natural in that uh in that riffing environment because yeah. it's uh it's a good combination of writing plus just silly personality is good for that yeah and How uh, long have you been doing stand-up? Uh, I've been doing stand-up since I was in college, and I graduated college in '03. Where did you go? I went to the University of Memphis. Oh, cool. And my first stand-up was I was in a sketch group with some other people, and we would they would let me go out first and just do what we called the monologues. We were all theater majors. But what I realize now is like proto stand-up for me. I was wondering if you did something before stand-up. I, as I thinking about doing this interview i was like i bet there's because you're very theatrical on stage oh yeah 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 so you can tell there's more than just your you went to an open mic and started doing stand-up right yeah i'm pretty big and uh and yeah i like to be act act out things and be emotional on stage it's very fun and cathartic so so yeah and and so i we did sketches and then then i had to drive 45 minutes to a casino in Tunica, Mississippi, when I did my first just stand-up. Wow. Um, and you'd perform for like uh, 10 or 11 old people who were tired of walking around the casino okay. would come in and sit down, and I'd perform for them. And it was an it was an open mic that would happen at this casino. Yeah, that's unusual. They would have uh, any act that came in could go up for five minutes, and then an improv troupe would perform. I think it was every Wednesday night at this casino. That's cool. And yeah. so you were going up once a week? I was going up once a week, yeah. And then you moved to Chicago and after that? Then I that? moved to Chicago. And in Chicago, um, you could get up a little more. And Chicago had a famous open mic that a mm-hmm. lot of really great people got their start at, like Pete Holmes, Hannibal, yeah, uh, all these great Chicago guys. Kumail Nanjiani, who's a very good friend of mine. And, uh, My sister used to go to that, I think. The Lions Den open mic. I she used to see all those people, and she would tell me she lived in Chicago after college. Maybe she did because it had a it was a open mic that had like fifty person audience every week. It like, was probably and that was probably about two thousand four. That's when it was still going. Yeah, yeah, it went till maybe I think they closed it in 05. but they, it, that was enough to really kind of, I mean, people were on fire to go see stand-up in chicago i feel like and then all and then all those comics had they all succeeded they i mean i'm sure not everyone succeeded but there's so many great comics came out of that they were all funny whether they you know them or not there were so many really 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 funny ones and uh yeah it it was cool because there was no industry in chicago and what I noticed later when I moved to New York or I visit L.A. is the comedians were a little bit more aware. And this can be good, but it can also be bad. The comedians in New York and L.A. were a little more aware of what was expected of them or what might get them on TV. Yeah. And they were trying to kind of fit into that space a little bit. But in Chicago, nobody cared. Nobody saw you ever. So the comedians were just kind of trying to out each other like outdo each other and in a very comrade 
friendly way. Like they were just like, oh, I can be weirder. I can do a crazier thing, you know. And so there was a lot of really weird original stand-up. It seemed to also start kind of like a conveyor belt to New York of comics from Chicago yeah. coming to New York and um, and succeeding. Yeah, and some went to L.A. too, mm-hmm. you know, Kyle Kinane. Right. So I sort of just missed him, but he was in my circle because people I knew in Chicago knew him. So I think in like 07 or something, I came out to L.A., to do something it was like my first trip to la and kyle canane just because he knew a friend of mine right picked me up at the airport wow and was like a super cool dude and helped me out like kind of find a place to you know crash for the night or whatever so like um yeah just a really lot of nice chicago comedians this wasn't really a a stinker in the bunch they were all funny and they were all cool. cool yeah i think a lot of people don't realize especially like younger comedians don't realize kind of how important it is just to be cool and like nice and hang out with people and get to know people um because it makes such a difference you know you you had a mutual friend with kyle canane yeah and you end up with having that experience and those are the things that kind of really help you move that was my first experience of like you know it's it's a network of people that kind of you know you know someone who knows someone who knows someone yeah and that is how people get jobs or right. in that particular case just a place to crash for the night but you know i i was always you know i i went to business school and then afterwards i was a consultant and you know everybody always would talk about how important it was to network and everything and i, I found it like very disgusting and yeah. uh, i had a really hard time with it and i'm like i don't i just i can't fake be friends with these people i don't have any interest in talking to these people or any of this stuff and then um, once I started running shows and getting to know comedians, I just wanted to talk to comedians. I wanted to hang out with comedians, and it was yeah. very natural and easy. And I didn't feel like I was had to fake something in order to get a job. It was like I'm just talking to the people I'm interested in talking to anyway. Yeah, I, I think if you have to try to network, quote-unquote network, right. it's probably not going to work out for you anyway. Yeah. Like Everybody can tell it when someone's trying. Yeah, it, yeah. It's just kind of like you kind of just need to be honestly interested in other people or mm-hmm. or what they do. And um, Yeah. How was your experience when you first went to New York? Was it hard for you? It was a little bit because um, you get your ego bubble popped a little right. bit because yeah. I was, you know, in Chicago I did a show every night I could go, I could show up at any show maybe they might throw me on you know so big fish literally big fish i I weighed like 300 pounds at that point (laughs) um and then i got to new york and i had a tv credit i moved i had i waited until i had a tv credit to move to new york i was on live at gotham and uh i thought oh here we go i'm a famous comedian yeah yeah like give me five years and i'll be the most was that on comedy central at that point comedy central and, you know, people didn't care. They were kind of like, oh, I don't care if you were on TV. Like, get in line right. behind the guy that started yesterday. Right. And it was good for me, though. Because, you know, it was the first time I had no... Okay, so I had zero money. I had, like, you know, 40 bucks in my bank account sometimes. And I was afraid I was going to not be able to pay my rent. And it was cold. New New York, it's very cold in the winter. And I lived in a really, uh, really kind of rough neighborhood. I lived uh, in Bed-Stuy, mm-hmm. uh, but this is 08, so this yeah. is like 10 years ago. And, um, you know, uh, 
it actually ended up being a really good experience for me because it made me kind of I had a lot of growing up to do, man. What were you doing to make money? I was temping and I temped during the financial crisis. Oh, wow. So that was really interesting because I was being, you know, they did use temps at that time because they had laid off their entire workforce in yeah, some of these yeah. offices. So I would be in these really, I would say, frankly, chilling situations where I'm in this huge, like, insurance companies, like, all of these empty cubicles, a sea of empty cubicles yeah. where they've laid everybody off, and they've got me kind of doing cleanup work. Like, hey, get these files out of here, box this stuff up. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, kind of like, kind of sad. Yeah, that is um, sad. But it was good for comedy because I was like, first of all, try, you know, feelings of sadness or <laughs> dissatisfaction right. can really motivate good comedy sometimes. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, it was interesting. It was interesting. I, I I did a lot of temping like that for years, for years in New York. Yeah, we had I had a similar experience because I was a consultant at that time. Yeah, right at the financial crisis, and we had in in the building I worked in, we had several floors of empty cubicles. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and it, we it was when I first started working it was before the financial crisis, and we had this big elaborate holiday party with like you know food stations from around the world yeah. and all this stuff and it was like oh wow i'm i'm in the corporate world now now yeah. now i'm like rich and stuff i mean i wasn't making very much money but it but it was like the st first feeling of like oh i see how how this works and i'm gonna get to become like a big shot and then the next year financial crisis and then they get this axe everything like yeah. all benefits Christmas party, like everything raises, it's all gone. Like you're yeah. just where you are now forever. Business is a harsh mistress. Yeah, it is. She loveth and she taketh away. So, so is comedy. They're both, they're both very difficult. It's true. I, some of the attempting things that I'm just like remembering that were like so interesting to me were, okay, so I got hired at one temp job and they gave me this small pile of work to do. Well, I, I, I guess I'm weird because when someone gives me work to do, I, I do it. Right. So I did this small pile of work and I went back to the supervisor and she was like, okay, I don't have anything else for you, Yeah. but I want to keep you on hand to do these few things that I don't want to do. Mm -hmm. So she's like, you can search the, you can just play on the internet for the rest of the day. Yeah. She goes, but don't let anyone see that you're doing that. Yeah. So here I am. I've got this like this computer that sort of faces out to like a place where people walk back and forth. I have nothing to do. Yeah. I don't want to leave cause I'm paid by the hour. Right. But now I've got, I was like, I wanted to be a temp, not a fucking spy. Yeah. Like, yeah. Now I'm like, I'm on like websites. I like reading about comic book reviews, but every once in a while I'm going to like shut it really. Oh quickly. yeah. And like, it would make my heart jump out of my chest. Like, and I was like, this, this sucks. Like I hated that. I, I had a weird exact same thing where, um, just the we had these really young managers it, it's a long story about how the all the old managers from our, our company bought another company and they lost all their management and so they just made these young people who weren't managers they put them in charge and it was very disorganized and so they kind of messed up the timing of the hiring and training and so we were done training and had no work to do but we had <laughs> just come to work because we had we had salaries we weren't we weren't being paid hourly and so we're just sitting in these cubicles and it, we're taking up like 20% of the cubicles. The rest of 80% is empty. We're just sitting there, have nothing to do. And I hadn't, it was my first job. I hadn't done taxes for like four years. Yeah. And I had lived in all these different states 
you know, being a waiter and stuff. And so I just sat, I just spent weeks just going through all my old stuff, doing my taxes, yeah. catching up on everything. It was literally just killing time. For you weeks used your time. Weeks. You used your time wisely. It sounds like I was. Yeah, I was bored, but everyone was bored out of their mind. Everyone's just sitting there reading the internet. It's so bizarre. It's so wasteful. And then when a financial crisis happens you're just not that surprised you're like right why was this huge mistake made like and i think that everybody that works a job really if you just keep them busy will it actually often like enjoy the job like yeah. you know what i mean if like you can keep someone busy and it's not mind numbing work like there's a little bit of a challenge to it or it requires like some like strategy or whatever like but like so often in office jobs, I was left with like nothing to do. Yeah. Another one, I was a temp. Remember, I was just there for a couple weeks, sometimes a couple months. A woman asked me if I would write the employee handbook. And I was like, oh, do you mean like type it out from notes or something? Mm-hmm. And she was like, no, will you like write one? Yeah. And I was like, I- I'm not even an employee. Yeah. I requested to write an employee handbook. At my job. Because they needed one. Because there wasn't one. Yeah. And I was like, we have to have this. Like, we're just winging it right now. Yeah. And we, we can't. Our job is to audit this government agency. And we're supposed to be correcting their files and making them accurate. But we don't know what we're doing. Yeah. And I was like, we need. we There there are people. There, there were like two people who knew how to do everything. And I was like, I need to sit with them. And have them tell me everything, and I'll write it all out, and then everyone can follow that, and we can do the work. And they were like, you mean you want to do like two to three pages? And I was like, no, no, I'm talking about, this is going to be hundreds of pages. Yeah. And they were like, nah, we don't think that's a good idea. And I'm, a, I'm like, okay, man, I'm going to go back to doing nothing. So that's fine. I'm going to do nothing. And then we we ultimately lost the contract because that's we were terrible, so inaccurate. But, like, yeah, people, ki- yeah, I mean... Clearly, you need a, a book that just gives all the rules of working here and what's expected of you in writing. Well, this you know is what a, I mean? this like, was like how to do like how to to accurately do our job. Not right. even it, not even having anything to do with like when you come to work or anything like this yeah. is how to actually do the work we're doing for the government. The work comes in from the government. We got to give it back to them in a certain form what's the workflow what are the instructions there's another thing that happens in offices that's really kind of terrifying which is that if you are someone who shows initiative the people around you will be like what the fuck are you doing oh yeah 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 you better we're all hiding and doing the least amount possible why the hell would you make more work for us or even just for yourself and make us look bad, right? Yeah. Like, so if there's someone who's like, I take on work for myself, like, people will still be like, stop it, dude. Stop it. Yeah. And that's so disappointing, you know? And it, it in comedy, I didn't see that. You know what I mean? No. Like, uh, you know, so I really liked comedy. And even when I started writing for a TV show, it wasn't like that. You know, people, even though everybody's in kind of an office, but they all, like, have this sort of ambition to kind of do cool stuff yeah definitely yeah 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 it's a completely different vibe it was really uh and that's even the job that i'm doing now producing comedy shows is a strange like it's a strange job that not very many people do but i pursued it because i was finally around people that were like trying to do something interesting everybody cared about what they were doing yeah and so even if even on a lower level of 
you know, career wise, it was a very interesting and like very refreshing to to come out of that environment. And it's sometimes I I'm like, I don't know if I can how long I'm going to be able to handle just the uncertainty of the future. Right. Of like if I'm going to try to get a buy a house and have kids, I don't know you know what's going to keep happening with these shows or what's going to happen with comedy or the economy and like i don't have like a stable job i could go get an office job and so i'm constantly stuck in between that should i go should i be in an office and but when have you're the in the office job they don't engage you no right? like no no you, and you're unhappy because you're not fully like using all your tools right. like you're almost better off like trying to survive you know what i yeah, mean yeah. like out on your own yeah because like you you want to be doing that you're unhappy when you're yeah. just like sitting there with like weeks of nothing to yeah, do in very an unhappy. office you um, just you just left a very secure job yeah i left the the james corden show i worked on that for three years and you were just about that, three years that's a good job that's a very I had good a great comedy time. job it was it was a lot of i liked that job it's a good job my bosses were all cool so when you made that decision to do that, did you feel like you were taking a risk by leaving? Yeah, it? definitely. And you are about to have a baby. Yeah. Which congratulations. Thanks. Um, did you know that thou, you were about to have a baby when you decided we knew to leave? We were going to have a baby. We, my wife and I always plan to have a baby. It's our dream to have some kids. And that, so that's a it's an extra bold move. To leave yeah, the job but at we the were same smart time. while I was at the job, and mm-hmm. we saved money, which is, you know, that's the reason to have a job like this. You right. Save some good money. And then on top of that, like, um, I guess I was more nervous right after I, I quit, mm-hmm. which the only reason I quit was is I was kind of like, what else can I do? I, I don't know. I don't know if I see myself doing this my whole life. Right. What, and, and I miss stand-up because it took me away from stand-up a little bit. Right. And uh, I said, oh, let's just see what else I can do. And so I have very good friends who, you know, help me get other gigs. And then I've gotten some things on my own. Yeah. And I had more time to work on a project I'm doing where I play um, Dungeons and Dragons with kids. Oh, that's nice. And so now we're going to film a pilot that, uh, you know, uh, Dungeons and Dragons, it looks like is going to be part of like the people that make it. So the actual company will be part of it. And um, and so there's all these little projects. Oh, I, I I. hadn't read written a script yet uh in a while mm-hmm. i hadn't written a script that i was like i would like to show this to people maybe try to sell it or yeah or you know ha- help me get another job through a script so i took time i wrote a, a script i like you know um but I, right after i quit i was very nervous like and you know my wife who's smarter than i am just kept going relax you're fine yeah and I wouldn't listen to her. I was like, no, yeah, we have to turn off the air conditioning because yeah. they're going to shut off all our power tomorrow. And she had to kind of keep going, shut the fuck up. Yeah. Quit freaking out. Yeah. And sit down here and watch Drag Race with me. Yeah. Um, and so that's so thank God my wife is smarter than I am and also emotionally more stable. Um, and then I kind of finally had the t- horrifying revelation that things are probably going to be fine. Yeah, yeah. I can't accept that either. I, I'm not in a constant state of emergency. I'm not going to be I'm not going to be ruined. And I'll tell you something else. If I had to go and fucking be a book jockey at Barnes and Noble so that you know, rent got paid yeah. and my baby got fed, right. I would 
probably do it happily. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully temporarily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, that's not going to happen. That's the point. It's not. Yeah. It's going to be fine. I can't accept the possibility of me not being ruined. Yeah, but you're not going to be. Though. I can't see how I won't be. No, it's just like it worked out. Yeah, so far. And there's no, it just did, and it's going to. And also, like you know, luckily we're not like people who are uh, being put into internment camps or people who are, uh, you know, got uh, addiction problems and who are on the street and stuff. Like we're, I'm very, 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 very times a thousand lucky. Yeah. And everything is going to be fine. And. Li- just living in crisis mode just got exhausting. Yeah, it is. It's definitely exhausting. And it's so hard to keep that uh, that good perspective. You know, it, if you read uh, some history or you read about things that are happening in other parts of the world or other parts of the country, you know, it doesn't, doesn't take very long to realize, you know, how great of a position that most comedians are in. Yeah, if you are in a position where you can you know spend your evenings kind of going out and like just talking yeah and figuring out what you think about things and making jokes like you're doing okay right yeah yeah definitely But most comedians i do think i really do think most comedians have some kind of like uh, this is i'm not being original here but they have like some kind of childhood trauma sure or or some kind of like thing that's like fucked them up in some way so that they have to go like I mean, you a com- comedy stand-up comedy is a crisis you've created for yourself. <laughs> I'm in front of a bunch of people, and they're waiting for me to say something interesting. Yeah, ah! yeah, like that's, yeah. <coughs> that's putting yourself in a crisis situation every night, over and over. Do you still feel that way? What do you? Does it still feel like a crisis situation when you go on stage? No, I mean, I hope not. Yeah, I mean, um, I you know, I did it like that for a long time. I didn't realize that's how I was doing yeah. it. And sometimes it made me do uh, good sure. stand-up comedy, uh, but then it's like uh, it's so exhausting. And then it's like if it's not going well, you're like you feel like the Titanic is sinking from underneath you. Yeah, and that's probably not the best way to think about it, right? Like it's a it's a job. Yeah, you know, you have tools. You uh, you write some things like, and you go out and you try them. But like again, my wife has to constantly remind me to just to have a good time and be, you know, what I enjoy sure. myself, or I get very in my head about it, which is stupid. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, when you step back, it's easy to see that you can be more effective. You can be more. You can be funnier if you're thinking clearly and uh, prepared. Yeah. And have you know or have been gaining when, experience. When people don't laugh, you don't take it personally. Right. Yeah. Which I always did for I mean, and I mean, when I say used to, I mean last week. Yeah, so I'm it's still hard not trying. to. Yeah, but it's you shouldn't though. I know it's e- it's easy to see from the outside. It's easy when I'm watching a comedian, I can see everything they're doing wrong, and then you know, and I might if they're a local comedian, I might point it out, and uh, but when then when I go on stage, I'll do the same thing because it's so hard not to do it. Right. It's like, you know, when you talk about stand-up comedy, it's like you're talking about all the things that you should do. It's like yeah. it's like when you go to, like, church. They t- tell you all the things that you yeah, should yeah. do, but then you find out the pastor's got a mistress. And, sure, sure. You know. It was – you uh, You had a lot of adversity last night at Big Hunt. But I was proud last night because I didn't get annoyed. Yeah, it was difficult. It, what, it was uh, 10 uh, Latino women celebrating a – 
one of their birthdays. They were celebrating a birthday, and what is something that often happens in, in comedy clubs, which is people come to celebrate something, and they are very nice. They're not trying to ruin the rest of the audience's fun, but they kind of mistakenly sort of assume that the night is about them. Yeah. But when you're part of an audience, you're part of the, everybody is part of a team, yeah. along with the comic who's all trying to give everybody a yeah. good night. So, you know, the classic is the bachelorette parties that show up sure. to clubs and they want all the attention and they want to be able to scream and talk to each other and have a party in the middle of a theatrical event. Yeah, <laughs> they emailed me several times throughout the week and I tried to I tried to kind of gently let them know with each email and request they had that it wasn't going to be about them at first they wanted to be able to sit together or, or reserve seats and i was like you can't reserve seats you know it's whenever you get here you can have yeah them. and then they were like um they're like what about can we bring in cupcakes and i was like that's up to the venue i was like i i can't tell you that you can bring in cupcakes <laughs> and i was like i would also try to eat those before the show um because wow. you're not going to be able to do it in the room yeah there uh, the, the, what you're running into and this is why you can't take it personal is like a a, a misunderstanding of what a comedy show right. is right so they think it's sort of like hiring a stripper or right. having someone cater your yeah. you know they, they think it's like a place where you go and have a birthday party. Yeah. But that's not what it is. No. Yeah. So I tried to make that clear. And then at the beginning of the show, I tried to, again, kind of guide them to we don't normally acknowledge birthdays. Um, and hopefully this will be the last that we talk about it. And, you know, and I knew that the host was experienced. I knew that Kara was experienced. You were experienced. So I was like, I think everyone's going to be able to handle this. And everybody did. Up until, you know, they get out of control and then they'll have to get kicked out at that point. But they, they had such a good attitude that it was really they were nice. It was hard to kick them out because they were really laughing so hard and they having were laughing so much fun. And they were, yeah, they were very vocal, but like, a couple times I was afraid the rest of the audience would get put out because they were, you know, they were like wooers. They like to woo. The whole time, the the rest of the audience was on the edge of being annoyed and it being okay. <laughs> and you could just see them and I could see their face from the when I w first went on stage to bring the host up. I could see it on everyone's yeah. face that everyone was concerned about whether the show was going to get ruined. And throughout the show, everybody it was just it was really on the edge. But I ended up having a great time watching that yeah I it was fun time. it was fun and it's I, I like when that happens with with certain comedians because you know someone like you when you're because you're big on stage because it gave you permission to really yell on stage sure and to yell i'll do whatever the fuck i want and stomp around and also I also find it very satisfying because you don't get to do it in life very often where people are being annoying and then you can just say, shut the fuck up. And then everyone, <laughs> then the whole room laughs. And then yeah. they laugh because like, because they've, it's been explained to them so many times, but they're having a good time that they're laughing at it. And then you're normally when they're, when an audience member is like kind of responding to your jokes, it's kind of quiet. And the rest of the audience isn't that annoyed by it. And only the comedian is annoyed yeah. by it. And then when you call them out for doing it, you kind of look like a dick. Mm -hmm. But in this case... The rest of the audience knew they were being annoying. So when you were like, when you say yes after everything I say, it is not helping. <laughs> You're able to actually 
it, you don't get that opportunity in life to just straight into someone's face, tell them how you feel and what they're fucking up and have everybody laugh about it. That's fun. That's fun to me. Yeah, it is fun. Uh, yes. And also, I mean, I hope I, I, I really more I work on stand up, the more I hope I'm not um, telling someone off or trying to enjoy that part of it. I hope I'm more like being funny while also communicating to them what's maybe yeah. throwing things off a little bit. Yeah. But I don't know. It's tough. It's tough. It is. It is fun. to. That's the best thing about stand up is you get yeah. to say what you mean in the moment, man. You get yeah. to really say what you think. And also, like, I think you did a good job of just going back and forth between jokes and and then dealing with them. Obviously, it's a lot more work. But, you know, it's like the shows tonight, it should be fine. Like, three out of the four shows, you won't have to deal with that one show. Yeah. It's kind of different. If you can get in, if you can do material, you're doing pretty well. Because there's, you know, I have been at shows uh, sometimes where I'm not headlining, you know, earlier in my career or, or even when I've headlined where... You can't even do any oh, material yeah. because um, the crowd is so crazy. They're yeah. just rowdy crazy. Yeah, especially if you have multiple crazy groups, then it's really difficult. Yeah, When it's only one crazy group, you can kind of play off of them and the regular audience. But then you start when it, when it's coming from different directions, you then you start to feel like it's out. Then you can't do material. Yeah. So then I would just do crowd work and that can that can do very well. And I've had good shows where I just did crowd work. Sure. But um, you know, I think it's cooler if you're a comedian to work on your material. I think yeah, material definitely. is better. Yeah, I think I, I think material is better also. Yeah. But I want to see material kill, not, you know, making fun of somebody or from my perspective of watching it four times in a weekend, I like to see three material shows and one yelling at people show. <laughs> right. So that's more <laughs> that's more interesting just for me personally. Yeah. So what was it? Did you enjoy the process of uh, of writing those of writing those monologues? So I do enjoy writing monologue, and um, it was really instructive because you there are all these things that you don't realize about jokes when you're saying them in your own voice that don't necessarily apply when someone else has sure. to deliver them, and so you and 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 you have to really do all these little tricks that make sure it works like something that never occurred to me is maybe put the funniest part at the end oh <laughs> that never occurred to you before well you know you think you know that right you think you know that because when you do a joke maybe you maybe if you're the style of comedian who makes sure he has a punchline, but with a monologue joke literally the funniest word yeah. should be right before the period yeah, right yeah. like because the person that's delivering it for you you know um, you know, needs a, in the audience at, at a show like that kind of needs a map for where to laugh a little bit. Oh yeah, definitely. So, so there were all kinds of little tricks like that, and like also what you know, what references will people get and what will they not get? You know, that was kind of like a really master class in that. And Did you um, have to spend a lot of time paying attention to pop culture in order to? educate yourself on those references the only thing that i would say would be something i didn't like about it was when we first started when i first started the job obama was still president Mm -hmm. and so we were just allowed to kind of write about whatever was going on in the news and that was fun right then trump became president and suddenly very quickly every single day the entire monologue was about donald trump yeah and um i don't like donald trump um but i also think that the constant coverage of him and the constant 
endless yammering on about him and all every joke being focused on yeah. him, I think it helps him and feeds his agenda. Yeah, and definitely. Um, I also think it gets very boring and very. Ex- I think people are exhausted. Totally. So I only have one Trump joke in my stand-up act, and I say this is my one Trump yeah. joke, and then. Uh, and then I, I got very tired when I was writing monologue. Like every day, you get up and they want they, they you know they want you to like look at every tweet he sent out and make fun of you every single tweet. And um, I, that became very uh, enervating. I became very kind of depressed doing that. Yeah, I, I mean it is some days. Well, I think it. W- I mean, I was reading Twitter a lot for for years and when trump became president you know it completely wiped out half of the twitter yeah like half of the the tweets that were in my feed and just made them all about trump and then that was just depressing all by itself just just reading that every day absolutely and you know there are um writers and comedians who i think are so good at writing things about him criticizing him making fun of him like Jess Dweck on Twitter, okay. uh, and my buddy Mike Drucker, yeah, are yeah. so brilliant and funny about it. Uh, Lori Kilmartin. So these are comics who like tweet about it nonstop, and I totally get the point of view of like the fucking world is on fire, and this is what I can do about it. So I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it every you know every couple hours on Twitter. I'm going to come out and say something. You know, yeah. I think that's fantastic, but I don't think that's for. I, I'm not as good at that. Sure. You know, I'm not as good at like just like being online all the time and um and finding all these little things in the articles and stuff. Um, I mean, I guess I I guess I could be good at it if I wanted to. I just don't like it that much. Yeah. Well, there, there was a, <laughs> I had to do it for my job for years. But there was a comedian here who was mostly a writer and he wrote for Rolling Stone and uh, he was not even to MC at a club yet. Um, but he was you know. You know, he's a little bit older as far. He was probably like late 30s. Yeah. To be at that level. He and was at Rolling Stone writer age, but maybe he was old for a new comedian. Old for old comedy wise. Yeah. yeah. He was he was succeeding in his career as a writer. Yeah. Um, And he was, you know, very political on Twitter all the time and great on Twitter. And really, you know, same thing as Drucker calling out Trump constantly being funny about it. Uh, and then he started a podcast that was all about Trump. And I think it, he just, it became, he realized it was making him miserable. And then he just, he stopped the Twitter and the podcast. Yeah. Cause he was like, well, I don't want this to, I don't know this, but this is what it seemed like from the outside that he just didn't want that to be his life. Uh, yeah. And I've stopped, I stopped uh, using Twitter completely because it's just, it's, it's too, too much negativity. I, it yeah. It doesn't make me feel good. Yeah. It's, um, it's, you know, it's just tricky to find, whatever the right amount is for you the yeah. right amount of twitter or facebook or whatever so it seems like you know having that job for a long time where you had to focus so much on that stuff and kind of that almost seemed like it gave you a break from having to like try to push your career forward and constantly you know think about what you're going to do next work on new projects it seems like when that ended you were kind of rejuvenated to come back to stand up and to work on these other projects totally um because um it's probably good like to to go into another milieu uh, another mm-hmm. kind of environment where 
you know, the kind of comedy that I want to do isn't just, you know, I, I knew how to do shows in New York, right? I yeah. knew how to kill on shows in New York. But, you know, killing in the room with a producer whom you were trying to pitch an idea to or yeah. or killing on a page that somebody gets and you're not there to read it to them, you know. Right. These are really good skills to have, but, you know, you're not going to learn them, uh, so, uh, you know, just doing shows in New York. So it was kind of cool to change gears for a while and learn some new skills, you know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And then when I yeah, and then when I got done. It was fun to come back to stand up and I found like I found right away that I was like, Oh, I can write material again and I can I can do all the things I used to do, but now I have a I'm a different person. Yeah. I'm a th- I'm three years older, so I have different thoughts about things. So, you know, you know I, I I probably had become a little tired of myself right before I took the job. Tired of listening to myself. Yeah, yeah. You know? And there's this like kind of New York point of view that kind of seeps into almost every New York comic, which is like Oh, the world is shit. Yeah. <laughs> look at yeah. all these shitheads and fuck it, this fucking place. This fucking city fucks you in the ass, doesn't it? <laughs> but you wouldn't have it any other fucking way. <laughs> yeah. And no matter what the comedian's tone is, I think that gets in a little bit somehow. And it was kind of cool to move to L.A. and meet people that don't think that that's a right. given and how you do comedy and don't have that kind of influence on them and to even lose it in myself a little bit. Yeah, you can see it. That. You can see it when people move, even just on on Twitter, um, the kind of change in attitude and and just the surprise at how pleasant things can be. Yeah, yeah. L.A. definitely. There's a lot more focus on being pleasant and having a pleasant time. Yeah, well, that's nice. Yeah. Well, I think we I think we hit a did lot. Did we of do stuff. it? I think we did it. We did it. Is baby. there anything else you want to get into? Um, I have an album called The Twilight Door that came out this year, so please listen to it. Okay, great. Uh, you can get it. You can buy it, and it's from a special thing records. Nice. And you can also just listen to it on Spotify if that's what you do. Um, anything else? Oh, and see the movie Stuber when it comes out. Uh, What's that next all about? year? It's an action comedy mm-hmm. that I helped work on a little bit. Who did you work on it with? Um, uh, a, a credible director named Michael Douse, who was the coolest dude, mm-hmm. but also Kum- my buddy Kumail. Wow. And uh, Dave Bautista from uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. And what did uh, what did you do on it? I was like, I wrote jokes. Oh, I to helped add write into jokes. The, yeah. To add into the movie. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, hope, hopefully people will check that out. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for doing it. Thanks, Sean. For more information about our live shows, check out undergroundcomedydc.com.